My name is Vida, Sister, Prince, and today is April 25, 1992. I am interviewing George Graff for the Missouri Historical Society's Oral History Project on World War II. Mr. Graff went to work for McDonnell Aircraft Company in January 1942 as chief engineer and retired in March 1982 as president. The McDonnell Aircraft Company was three years old in 1942. Uh, Mr. Graff, today St. Louis and the world thinks of McDonnell Aircraft as uh, McDonnell Douglas rather as a international company and, and as it is. But when you came here in 1942, uh, what did you find McDonnell Aircraft Company to be? Well, it was a very small company. Uh, we had one contract for an airplane at that time, which was the uh, XP-67 for the United States Army Air Corps. Uh, we had built no airplanes. Uh, we had designed them except that. Uh, McDonnell was building its manufacturing work was for uh, Douglas Aircraft building tail surfaces for the uh, uh, C-47, which is the DC-3, the military version of the DC-3. Was it a guinea bird? Yes, it was also referred to as a guinea bird. Okay. And uh, we were making some other parts for uh, for Douglas as well. And uh, but here in St. Louis, the uh, it was a very small organization. It was all on uh, all of the engineering was at the Lambert Field. Uh, the engineers were housed in uh, what was the old Hoffman Barracks. It was an air pilot school, training school that had gone belly up, and uh, about. Two-thirds of the engineering was there, another third was in one of the hangars. And uh, about the only airplanes you saw were those that were flying out of Curtis Wright's new plant. And uh, they were making, I think, uh, AT-9s and hell divers over there. And uh, if you wanted to watch an airplane fly, you had to watch a Curtis one because we didn't have any going at the time. And Douglas was in California. Douglas was in California. The two and Douglas was a big company by that time. Mm -hmm. uh, it had uh, both Air Army Air Corps and Navy contracts as well as commercial contracts. Uh, and uh, what uh, were you hired because the war broke out, or were you hired before the war broke out? I was hired after the war broke out. Uh, I was a, let's see, December 7th, 1941 was just the middle of my senior year. Uh, I was working at Continental Aviation and Engineering in Detroit as a draftsman uh, on a co-op arrangement, one month at work, one month at school. And at that time you told me you were at the University of Detroit. Yeah, <coughs> University of Detroit. It was a five-year course. The last three years were co-op, that is, you were employed for a month and worked for a month, mm -hmm. but you went to school the whole year. 
Uh, and your BA was at St. John's. I'm, I'm sort of backtracking yeah, here. Right. I came, I transferred, I took my BA, I graduated from high school in 35, graduated from St. John's in 1939. I took the pre-engineering work along with the AB degree. So that when I went up to the University of Detroit, I went up as a pre-junior, they call it, for one of the start the first of those three co-op years. Uh, the final year we were there, we were being interviewed by people uh, for jobs in the in the industry, uh, and I had uh, an offer from Boeing and from. Uh, McDonald, and the reason I heard of McDonald, one of the former professors, a friend of mine up there, had come to work here, uh, and uh, he had personally recruited three or four of us to, co to come down. And I came down with two other UAD graduates in uh, March of 42. I was still in school, worked a month down here that month, went back in April finished up, graduated in May, and came down to work permanently in May. Mm -hmm. and, uh, so they were gearing up? They were... Adding people? Well, they were, they were trying to get engineers at the time because we had a big... Uh, it was a big job to, to build the XP-67, and they were, they were really desperate for design engineers, uh, mostly people that were familiar with aircraft. Now, I, fortunately for me, I... I didn't. I was a, uh, an aerodynamicist and got to work on the, the theoretical side, the wind tunnel testing and, and mm -hmm. uh, designing the external shape of the aircraft. We um, when 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 Pearl Harbor when we were attacked by the mm -hmm. Japanese at Pearl Harbor. I mean, did you realize then that what you were in was? Uh, Going to be sought after? Well, yes, but <laughs> uh, I got interested in aviation in 1923. My father took my brother and I for a ride in a uh, Curtis Jenny when we were on vacation in Red Bank, New Jersey. We were, I was born and lived in New York City for the first eight years of my life. And uh, he came down on one weekend and took my brother and I for a ride. And by the time Lindbergh flew the Atlantic, I was building models. I was committed to the fact that I wanted to build aircraft. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's very strange for me today to see all my grandchildren, for example, who have gone through, gotten their college degrees, and haven't any idea yet of what they want to do. And it's, uh, I can appreciate how tough it must be, because it was so easy for me. You knew what you wanted to do. As soon as you had that airplane. Yeah. And uh, even the, uh, the job I had in Detroit, uh, was an excellent one at, at Continental Aviation Engineering. I had started there in 1939 and uh, at 50 cents an hour, but they were working 60 hours a week, and it was time and a half for overtime on it, and it was more than enough to pay my uh, $7 a week room and board and my tuition. And I had worked up to uh, uh, sort of a junior draftsman but I was, the pay had gone up to a dollar and a quarter an hour. But I didn't want to build engines, <laughs> even though they were aircraft engines. Mm -hmm. And so I, I remember going into the, to, uh, the chief draftsman and telling him that 
I really appreciated the fact that I'd had the job for three years and without it I wouldn't have been able to go to school or wouldn't have been able to afford it. But that I really wanted to build and design aircraft and not engines. And he asked me if I had talked to the chief engineer at Continental, uh, who was a UAD graduate and was kind of sponsoring the four or five of us that were over there. And I said, no, I really didn't think I should. He was a vice president. <laughs> he said, I think you better. So I went in to see him. And uh, after work, I got an appointment. And uh, I told him that uh, Mr. Knuth and I said, I really appreciate the fact that I've had these three years and all of it's meant to me. I said, but I want to build and design aircraft, and so I'm going to go to work for McDonald. And he looked up and he said, how much are they paying you? Because he thought they were buying me away. And I lied. I said, 90 cents an hour. It was actually 89. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, get the hell out of here. I don't want anybody that stupid working for me. <laughs> <laughs> so I saw him about 15 or 20 years after that, and, and we <laughs> laughed about it. But, uh, but that was it. It was, uh, there was never any question. I, I just wanted to. Uh, it was in your blood. Yeah. And uh, I, I enjoyed it. It was a great, if you had to pick a time mm -hmm. to be in the aircraft industry, the time between 1940 and, and 1980 was probably the most uh, exciting. The development, the, the war effort, the accelerated development that went on with it, and the, the large number of airplanes that were being designed and built and tested. Well, you, did you feel when you came down here that you picked the right company, or that they? Oh, I, I, when I came down here, really, uh, I was one A. I figured I was going to be drafted, and the, the, the real reason I didn't go to Boeing, which was a bigger company then, and, and much. Uh, more renowned than, than Mac was at the time, was that if he was going to be drafted, I'd be closer to, to Toledo and, and home. Mm -hmm. And uh, funny, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> the the oh, decision was made that way, and, uh -huh. and I don't know what would have happened had I gone to Boeing. It, uh, I wouldn't be interviewing you, but otherwise. All right, let's again. So, so what did you do when you came down here? Uh, went to work in the aerodynamics department. Uh, we were testing. One of the advantages I had from the UAD was that we had experience with wind tunnels. They had a wind tunnel at the University of Detroit. And they were really short of people here. I think Bill Black, who came down with me, and myself, and one other man from Bell at the time, Irv Shepard, were the only three that had any experience with wind tunnels. So we were uh, put right into to going out of, into these tunnels. Bill went down to uh, Langley Field to do some testing on the XB-67. I went out to the University of Washington in, in Seattle to do some testing on the, uh, uh, what was the FD Phantom at that time, and uh, some flutter tests that we were doing for uh, Consolidated Voltique. But that was the, had I gone to Boeing, I don't think you would have had that opportunity right off the bat, but you were handed this responsibility because they had so few people that had that kind of experience. Because it was and small, too. It was small. Uh, I think there were less than... Well, my number at MAC was 1837, and that included everybody. 
for a while they were just cataloging, they were just giving numbers to engineers and, and identical numbers to uh, manufacturing. But this was experimental aircraft, right? yes, that, that was going to be thought of as after the war. Well, it was not a war after. Uh, well, nobody knew how long it would last. Uh, the XP-67, had it been a successful airplane, flew in time to, would have been in time to go into production. It was not a successful one. Uh, it was underpowered. Uh, and, uh, but during that time, Mr. Mack got a call from uh, one of the admirals at the Bureau of Aeronautics asking if he could be down in, in Washington, I think it was on a Saturday or over a weekend, uh, to uh, see if we would undertake the design of a jet-propelled uh, fighter for the Navy. Uh, I think one of the reasons McDonnell was selected was the fact that all of the other uh, major manufacturers for the Navy were so busy with production of aircraft and the changes to those production aircraft that were being used in the war effort mm -hmm. that uh, they could see a, a design team at McDonald that could be put on this. Now they, I'm sure that the that the uh, FH-1, which was the name, the first Phantom, uh, had the war continued, probably would have been used in it. But uh, actually, it, the Navy at that time probably could not have afforded to, to let that go to one of the other contractors because they so desperately needed the airplanes that they were building at that time and the modifications to them that they wouldn't want to strain there or take anything away from that effort. What made you all different? I mean, it sounds like that, that you were ma you made. What was the role? Well, I think one of the things was, was you Mr. You making planes like, like the we had no We had no production record on it. We had built this one for the Air Force, which was not a success. It was underpowered. But uh, Mack himself had a great reputation, I think, in both the Navy and uh, with the Air Army Air Corps. Uh, and he had this opportunity to do it. He had put together a good engineering team. So you were really manufacturers are designed. You were really a company that designed planes at that time? No, that, that's, the, we had only it's designed, what, yeah, what we had only were. designed the XP-67. That was the engineering uh, group's main effort. In manufacturing, we had built, as I said, parts for the uh, Douglas uh, C-47 and for the, uh, and Collings for this A-26, I think and uh, oh there were some other airplanes we made parts for at that time but it was only uh, the only manufacturing we were doing was parts for other people's design the only design we had had up to that time was the xp67 and as i said it, it was not a success it was underpowered uh, it was a very beautiful looking airplane it had a lot of aerodynamic uh, uh, and engineering uh, advances in it that but uh, it was just woefully underpowered as far as... I just want to get a picture of the early 
part of the, or the middle of 1942, and what was going on inside? Did, did people sit down and say, where is this company going, or did you... No, not at that time. Did the government the, tell you what to do? The government, the government was doing most of it, and as I said, here's Mr. Mack. He gets a call out of clear blue. Come down, we want to give you that. Uh, we went down, and uh, he, he brought a team of engineers. They worked with the Navy on it, and within a matter of two or three weeks, they came back with a contract and a design to build this first experimental one. Uh, we were quite well into the experimental one. The, the experimental aircraft hadn't flown when we got the a production order for 60 or 120, I think it was. Uh, because the, the, the way they were doing it at that time was they'd do enough of the experimental work to convince them that, hey, it, it looks like it's reasonably going to go, mm -hmm. and then they would commit the production work on it. Mm -hmm. So by the end of 1945, we were working on both the production version and getting ready to fly the, the experimental version. And Westinghouse uh, was building the engine for it. It was a little... the, the Bel Air Cobra, I think, was the first uh, jet-powered aircraft in the United States. Uh, and it had uh, GE engines in it, which were they weren't uh, the through-type compressors, the, uh, they were the centrifugal-type compressors as opposed to the actual compressor. Westinghouse was building the actual ones, and uh, we got the first ones, I think, were 1,900 pounds of thrust when we put them in the uh, FD. The airplane was a success from the start. It uh, operated aboard the carriers. It had met the speed requirements on it. It had wonderful performance, good handling characteristics. And we built, the war ended then and the production order for 120 was cut to 60. Or I think it was even cut to 30 and then actually increased again after that. So that the Navy bought 60. And we were just starting on that one and, and the way the, the Navy and Air Force were handling it at that time, they immediately let a contract for an improved version, which became the Banshee, the F2H2. And uh, that airplane was in production just prior to the Korean War and was used extensively in the Korean War, the Banshee. And by that time, Mack had a, a good reputation now of, of building jet fighter aircraft. The war ended, a lot of the uh, uh, research which was being done in Germany, and they were way ahead of it in this, uh, became available. And uh, a lot of the airplanes that were on the drawing board at the end of the war were changed radically as a result of the, of the findings that we, we had in, in Germany. It isn't quite fair to say that we were behind that much. We, a man at, uh, it used to be the old National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, NACA. It later became NASA the National Aircraft and Space Administration. But when it was NACA, it was the research and test, government's research and test facility for aircraft. 
And they, they didn't enter into production. They didn't do anything but research and wind tunnel testing. They built wind tunnels, operated them, and did theoretical work. And there was a fellow by the name of Robert T. Jones that uh, had come up with the idea that sweeping the wings back was a way to get around the uh, uh, sonic barrier, the com wall of compressibility at the speed of sound. But it was a theoretical paper, and uh, the Germans took it much farther than that. They had uh, done a lot of wind tunnel testing, and they actually had a jet fighter, several of them flying, during the war, close to the end of it, the ME-262, which were swept back wings and, and were far in advance of anything the Allies had. But all that information became available following the war, and so a lot of the airplanes that were on the drafting board at that time were changed. Was the, the, oh sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. The, uh, oh gosh, Mark. I ate lunch until. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. The uh, North American had a jet that was in competition with, or was flying at the same time for the Navy that, that we had, and they, they changed it to, to sweep the wings back on theirs. Mm -hmm. uh, but even at that time, McDonald was one of the smaller less recognized uh, aircraft designer. The, uh, at the end of the war? Even at the end of the war. North American Lockheed uh, consolidated Bolte uh, and Republic and Bell were all better known for the Army Air Corps and for the Navy Grumman and Chance Vought. Did the Germans have better planes than we had planes than we did during the war? Uh, I think at the end of it, they, as far as fighters went, yes, they did. It was very fortunate for us that uh, Hitler was obsessed with the idea of, of retaliatory bombing for the massive bombing that had gone on inside Germany. Right. He started it with the bombing of London. The British went right back and, and bombed Berlin and Hamburg at night. And, and then, the, then the big Allied air offenses, uh, bombing offenses, and he was obsessed with this idea of a retaliatory strike against the British. And for that reason, he held up the he didn't hold up the prediction, but it, production, but he diverted the effort of the ME-262, which was a terrific fighter. It was far better than anything we had, and was pushing it for a, a bomber to, to strike uh, Brooklyn. And that delay uh, in there, although it was only a matter of months, was enough for the uh, U.S. Air Force and the British and the Allies to, uh, to deal the German Air Force at a death blow before they could come in any significant numbers. Uh, I don't think there's any question. As far as the, the piston uh, propeller-driven aircraft, I think it was a pretty even match. I think the, X, the P-51 Mustang was every bit as good as, as either the Focke-Wolf or the, the ME-262 of the Germans. But 
their problem wasn't the same one. We had to get long range and still have maneuverability and combat efficiency to fight them, whereas they were fighting over their homeland and had a distinct advantage. They could uh, build aircraft that were for that for the defense of Germany was much easier. And it was the same thing that the uh, Royal Air Force had when in the Battle of Britain. The Spitfire was a wonderful aircraft. The German fighters that had to come over and escort their bombers uh, were at the end of their range and could only spend a few minutes in, in protecting the bombers. And the, uh, the Spitfire easily won that. What about the pilots? How did they measure it? Well, I think if you talk to uh, I think the, the German pilots were recognized uh, as, as just excellent. Uh, it's pretty hard to, to, to draw a distinction there as to who were the better. Um, we certainly had the advantage of numbers, being able to train them and, and uh, bring them in that way, but they, they certainly had a... Uh, a cadre of, of just outstanding pilots. We've got to get back to 1942. Okay. <laughs> um, what was the, um, did the shortages in Europe right before the war started uh, for us, did that have any problem? Did that give you all any problems? Whether it was rubber or whether it was uh, chrome or Oh, there were several. There were several attempts uh, to build aircraft with other than uh, aluminum, which was, of course, uh, in very short supply. Uh, there were several wooden-type aircraft that were built. Uh, in fact, I think Mack even had one. Uh, I forget what the number was. It was a twin-engine trainer that we made down in Louisville. Uh, at a plant down there, and I think we built something like 25 or 30. Uh, there were several others. Uh, so that you'd have to say yes, that the, the strategic materials such as aluminum or in short supply, you had to get on priority lists. Everything was on a priority list. If you wanted to travel, you had to get a priority. Uh, it took you 13 hours to go from. St. Louis to the West Coast, and during the war years, I think the highest priority we got was the sea, which was much better than the average civilians could get, but you could almost always count on getting bumped somewhere along the line, particularly at the uh, cities, Cheyenne, Wyoming, uh, Great Falls, Montana, those were uh, depots for the Air Transport Command, people that uh, were ferrying aircraft. To, to Russia, to the Japanese, to, to the Pacific, and, and overseas to Great Britain. And you could almost always count if you were going to fly out to Seattle to test at the University of Washington out there, you were going to get bumped in Great Falls for sure and spend at least eight or ten hours there waiting for another flight to get. And it was the same thing if, if you went the southern route to Los Angeles. Uh, you'd get uh, you'd get bumped in Cheyenne or, or some other place like that. Uh, tell me about working at McDonald's, the the hierarchy, and you, you, tell me about Mr. Mack and well, did you see, and this was James James M S. McDonald, McDonald. Okay. yes, Junior, I think it is. Uh, 
is a native of Arkansas. Uh, I think I was extremely fortunate to have, uh, to have been around him and to work with him and to see him work. Uh, he was a very uh, disciplined, dedicated engineer and entrepreneur. Uh, his engineering things are probably overlooked in, in one respect because he was such a great uh, organizer and financial. But uh, Mac was an aeronautical engineer. He got a master's degree. He graduated from Princeton, got a master's degree from the uh, MIT. Uh, he decided that if he was going to build aircraft, he had to have a pilot rating, so he joined the Army Air Corps. Uh, I think he became a lieutenant in the Air Corps, flew. He made the first parachute jump, the first backpack parachute jump. He and a Cherokee Indian sergeant. Uh, in this country? In this country. Uh, parachutes uh, in World War I were, were no, nobody used them in, in fighter aircraft. Balloonists used them. But getting out of an airplane with a parachute uh, had just not proven to be practical. And so the Army Air Corps at that time, after the war, uh, had a program to, to test backpacks. They strapped the, pack, the parachute on the back. And uh, the procedure was that this uh, military aircraft would take off with a pilot and Mac and this Cherokee Indian sergeant. <laughs> Mac is a commissioned man and then this other fellow is an uncommissioned officer. And they would uh, spirit, climb to, to 5,000 feet and uh, one would get off and walk. You had to walk out on the wing. And there were struts, of course, and wires bracing on it, so you could hold on to the wire bracing as you went out and grab a strut. And you had to go out far enough so that you would miss the tail surface of the airplane when you were playing. And then, on a given signal from the pilot, they were to hold on the strut with one hand and, and pull the ripcord with the other. And if the chute opened, it would pull them <laughs> off and, and, and back. If it didn't, they had a chance to hang on. Oh, <laughs> Sounds better than today. You oh. <laughs> And uh, he, he participated in that. And it, I heard him tell one time that he said that when he got out there, he said he was telling his right hand to pull the ripcord, but he wasn't doing it. <laughs> Mac was, uh, he was a real entrepreneur. He did, uh, he, I think he had three attempts at trying to start an aircraft company, and, and the final one, McDonald Aircraft, was a successful one. He, he uh, worked for Henry Ford. He was fired by Henry Ford for wearing plus fours to work. Henry didn't think that was the right thing. <laughs> was the right thing. Another piece of luck. <laughs> uh, he worked for Glenn L. Martin. And I think he was the chief design engineer when he decided that he wanted it was time to start his own company. And uh, he picked St. Louis deliberately because the, uh, there was a concentration of aircraft companies on the East Coast and the West Coast and nothing in between. And he thought that if a war was coming, the ideal place to be and a good labor source was, was St. Louis. And people knew thought the war was coming. Oh, he, I think, uh, as good 
as sharp as Mac was on world affairs, I'm positive he knew it was coming. Mm -hmm. uh, and he, so he came here to St. Louis. He raised. July I think it was July. Mm -hmm. it, sometime between July and September. Did he actually hire you? No. Uh, Garrett Covington, who was the assistant chief engineer at that time, hired me. Were you a little nervous when you went to meet Mr. McDonald? Well, he was very easy to me. The first time I met him was at a uh, at a party, an engineering party, and I remember Mrs. Covington grabbing me and saying, you go dance with Mrs. McDonald. <laughs> Your boss is funny. And you said? <laughs> well, I, that was my boss, me, his boss, so I said, what he told you to do. And uh, no, Mac was, uh, he was not aloof. He was had a wonderful uh, rapport with the, uh, people in the shop. Uh, Mac knew many of them by their first name. He could walk out into the shop and, and uh, recognize them. But he had that, that wonderful ability. As good an engineer as he was, he never interfered in the decisions made in engineering. And that takes a tremendous amount of discipline to do that. As you move away from engineering, you have a tendency to second guess the people that are, that are doing it. And Mac had that wonderful ability. I, he, that doesn't mean he didn't follow it closely. Mm -hmm. He didn't question it seriously. But he took their decision, made them responsible for it, and went with it. Mm -hmm. Made them feel pretty and, good. Uh, it, you, sometimes you felt very alone, as a matter of fact. Uh, That's a, almost a confidence builder. It is. A, it's a it. great confidence builder for the people. Mm -hmm. And uh, it. It is, I'm convinced, the right way to do it, but it takes a tremendous amount of discipline for a very knowledgeable engineer, mm -hmm. not while you're de while he's dealing with something entirely else, the problem comes up in engineering, to go in there and say, well, now here's the way you fix it. Mm -hmm. uh, Mac mm -hmm. could step back from that, assign the responsibility, and, and get the best out of people to do it. And even at that time, it was very evident to Mac the way he was. Um, how was, um, what did, what did his brother do? Uh, Bill McDonald is, is, uh, was Mac's older brother, and uh, he was a banker. Uh, he came to St. Louis. Uh, he then went to work for one of the railroads, I forget which it was. Uh, and he also served on the board of directors. At, uh, mm -hmm. But he never let Mac forget that he was the, the younger brother. <laughs> Um, so, tell me, you had, you had, tell me, tell me, explain to me where the different uh, production places were in St. Louis. Well, at first they were out, they were out at the field. Mm -hmm. uh, we had several of the hangars out there in which we did uh, production work. And then they got into the 18th Street garage, uh, and that became uh, the major production area for the work we were doing for Douglas on the West Coast and, and for, I think there was one other aircraft up in, I can't think of who it was, that we were building parts for during the war. But the, that production effort was going on at the 18th Street Garage in downtown St. Louis. Mm -hmm. uh, about taken a year... Taken over, excuse me, because of the war effort. Because of the war effort. Uh, prior to moving into the Curtis Wright building, about a year, we, I was out there at the uh, at the Huffman Barracks for about 
eight months, I think it was, when we, when we moved downtown to the, uh, at Sarah and Laclede, there was a, uh, an old Cadillac uh, car agency down there, and we took that over. There were three stories in the building. Uh, and this was because they had ramps and is this why you used well, the Well, we were looking for a, a larger place. Engineering had grown so that we were all scattered all over out of the field. Uh, as I said, somewhere in the Huffman barracks, somewhere in other hangars. Uh, and this was a place to get all of engineering under one roof. And so they moved down to the uh, to that building on Sarah and Cleve. Mm -hmm. And we worked down there. until we acquired the, until after the war. There were, the Navy had a flight operation, a, a training group here, primary training. They flew called the Yellow Perils, a, a, a biplane, open cockpit, primary trainer. Uh, they were called the Yellow Perils. <laughs> and they used to land the flight path took them immediately over the Hoffman barracks, and you were always sitting there. You hear an engine cut, mm -hmm. an instructor deliberately do it, and you wonder whether you're going to get the wheels in the roof. Yeah. Uh, but the city of St. Louis sued the Navy for, uh, I think it was six million dollars, some, something like that, for damage to Lambert Field as a result of their operations during the war with those Yellow Perils. Well, it was, it was really a ridiculous, uh, well, it, it's hard to see that you could have done six million dollars worth of damage to the runway shop there. Yeah. So what happened? Well, the Navy, rather than, set, rather than fighting the thing in the courts, uh, owned the building that Curtis Wright was in. Mm -hmm. So they gave the city the Curtis Wright building yeah. as a settlement of the suit. Max saw the opportunity to the city sitting there. What are they going to do with the Curtis Wright building? It's, it was certainly worth the six million. The, the city uh, finally agreed to sell it to McDonald for uh, $13 million, I think it was. Now, this was towards the end of the this war. This is at the end of the war. Okay, because yeah. as I told you on the phone, Bud Meissner said that mm -hmm. the old, I guess, Curtis Wright building, they yeah. dismantled and took it down to the St. Louis Car, that was part of the St. Louis Car Company, and then Curtis Wright built a new building. And you may help me out in any way. Well, that, the Curtis Wright, the together. new Curtis Wright building was out there when I came. So that, in 1942, that building was up and operating, what is now McDonnell Aircraft. Okay, and so that building never changed since you were... Well, there were additions made yeah, to it, modifications. Yeah, and that was the basic uh, Curtis Wright building. And they built, as I said, the AT-9s, AT-25s, and I think SB-2C hell divers out there, and, and C-46s uh, during the war. But when the war ended, Curtis Wright apparently decided that there was no future in, in building aircraft. Peace had come. All they've got are military aircraft, and they were getting out of the business, really. And so... Uh, That building became surplus, and the Navy gave it to the city of St. Louis in settlement for that suit from the Yellow Peril. Mac bought it from the city, with, and it was a tremendous 
uh, windfall from the city. I mean, here you have a $6 million suit to get the building, and now you're selling it for $13 million. It's almost like the post yeah. office building yeah. out there. Right. <laughs> but Mac did put the stipulation in that the money used that he was paying for it had to go for the betterment of the airport. And it's probably what really got the, uh, the new administration building because the administration building at that time was up at the west end of the field. It's dismantled now, but there was a light tan brick building up there, two, two stories with a tower on the top of it, which served as the, uh, the airport uh, until the new buildings were built over on the uh, south side. Um, how would you say that that with with the production that was going on, things were changing, I and mean, he might have, must have lost people to the war, the armed forces. We're constantly he losing. He had to train, bring people in, and train them, and we're constantly losing people to the armed forces. Engineers, uh, you were losing those both in attrition. At that time, uh, anybody that worked at an aircraft plant for more than 18 months was suspect. Uh, they usually picked up. Uh, Boeing's got a new contract, they need engineers, off they go to that one, and uh, they were very nomadic like, like the lawyers now. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm, that's right. But they, uh, they, they moved constantly, and you, were, you had a loss in that. Uh, you also had a loss to the draft. Uh, the draft boards were, were not uniform in the way they treated uh, deferments. When I graduated, uh, in the same class with me, people who lived one block north of where I was in Detroit, I registered south of Six Mile Road, they lived north of Six Mile Road, they were called in by the draft board in uh, early January of 1942, that was just a month after Pearl Harbor, and told by the draft board that they, the draft board had to see an acceptance by one of the services uh, from them or they would draft them immediately. Yeah. And uh, all mindset will we, we see uh, until you graduate and we'll, we'll do it then. So uh, there was just no uniformity at all. I, I was reclassified, I think, 1A at least three different times. I know I made two trips to Jefferson Barracks I uh, sent my wife home with the, with the child, was getting ready to close up the house, and would get a deferment. So you were, were you continually deferred then? I was continually deferred, yeah. So you Except, as I said, I'd get, I'd get one, you'd, yeah. you'd get these changes in classification. Mm -hmm. I'd have one A, the company would be saying, hey, you can't take it, you can't take it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they'd say you would, and at the last minute, there'd be somebody step in, and, and you'd have another deferment again. Give me, please, that overview of the aircraft industry in St. Louis. Um, you tell me pretty much what you were doing mm -hmm. here. So there was Robert, Robertson Aircraft? I think they were still operating at the time, and they may have been doing some of the same things that Mike was on a smaller scale, that is making uh, parts for. Leister Kaufman had a they were not on the airport. They were downtown. They were in the arena, I believe. Near the arena, right. He's part of the building. Right. And they were building gliders for the U.S. Army. 
Curtis Wright, of course, was, was the major uh, manufacturer at the time. They were building at least four aircraft here in the St. Louis plant. And I mean, their operation compared to the others just swamped it. There was nothing comparable to it. But I have read that it was a glamorous plant. Everybody wanted to work there. Oh, it was a, at the time. I, I'm sure it would have been, must have been one of the more modern plants. It was, uh, it was a wonderful plant when we moved into it uh, in 1946. They made the Hell Diver. They made the Hell Diver, SB2C. They made the AT9, which was a, I think, was an Army Air Corps twin-engine trainer, mm -hmm. and an AT25. C46. And the C46. Commando, yeah. They made all of those here in St. Louis. And then was there something called the St. Louis Aircraft Corporation? Seems to me there was. Uh, it says, I read, and I don't know if this is true or not, mm -hmm. because the book is a little iffy, uh, that they made training planes, PT-19. Uh, yes, the St. Louis, I think they did make some for the Navy. I, mm -hmm. I don't know, what book did you have then in, do you know? Um, it's, uh... Of course, they awarded a $139,419 contract by the War Department for training. So they were here. St. Louis. St. Louis Aircraft. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, um, so the main ones were, were Curtis Wright and, the, and then what you all were doing, um, and gliders by Leister Kaufman and what you just said about St. Louis aircraft, and I think in this... Robertson was Gliders, uh, I think they, that's what was in this book, and um, uh, now and then it said Emerson Electric, they made components for military aircraft, yes. the gun turrets, and um, let's see, for also B-17 Flying Fortresses and B-24 Liberators, six different turrets on six different lines? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so now here in, in 1940, St. Louis Aircraft Corporation produces 13 YPT-15 military training planes. Nothing on Robertson. Well, maybe compared to what other people were doing, it wasn't. Well, this had almost all of them in one. Train these people that that would come in and and uh, you had so many different areas of you know like downtown the two places downtown. Well, of course, uh, Mac did the training then. They had the uh, people that came in to learn to be riveters or sheet metal assembly people. Uh, there were training programs in place in the company for that. Did they send them also? They were places in St. Louis, some uh, of the uh, um, vocational schools, Hadley. No, I don't think so. Unless they were, they were getting. They may have been getting people from that. They got a lot of people from Parks Air College. Mechanics came over from there. Mm -hmm. uh, that was before it was affiliated with St. Louis University. It was a flight and mechanics school. Uh, Did you open up your hiring practices? Uh, the women? Yeah, there are, there are very many women employed in, in 
at Mac at that time. And did you open it up to black yeah. minorities? Mac had a lot of minority uh, people, although they were mostly in the housekeeping end of it at the time. Uh, they were not in the production plan. Well, I think it was more a problem with the unions than it was. Uh, but there were very few of them in, in production work, as I remember. Most of them were in the general housekeeping. Were there any problems with protests and no. demonstrations? None. Uh, the, the protests and demonstrations didn't come until long after that, about the time of Percy Green, I think, about 1964, <coughs> 65, around that they time. They touched you off. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. there, there were some, but they, uh, they wanted jobs, but it didn't, it didn't. Well, there was a, uh, start at Kennedy's. Trying to think when that, that occurred. Well, I can't remember the dates on it. I know we had uh, to come up with with uh, quotas and things like that at that time too. And Mac was very upset about it because we'd had an open door policy on it. And but that was. That was way after the war. I think it was almost at the start of the F-15 program, maybe 1969, and that It's interesting the way you, you you do things in your head. I think with not so much the years, but where the program where the program right which airplane was, <laughs> right. was being put on it. Well, you know, it, it's interesting. In the first 25 years that I was at McDonald, I worked on 14 different aircraft. And in the last 15 years that I was there, I worked on three. Mm -hmm. And every time they would have a, put out a new plane, they would give everyone a wine glass with <laughs> the name of the plane inscribed on it. Oh, that was one of the giveaways. That was, <laughs> we have more wine glasses. We have company. Sure. What, was there, what was there in the way of the morale? Did you bond drive? What went on? Morale was, I think, was very high. Um, there was a when we got into the jet to an engineer and got into the jet propulsion uh, and began to see that we were really doing something in the forefront of it. I think morale was very high in the engineering department. Now we're war years. These are war years. Yeah. Uh, either in nineteen early in nineteen forty three, Mac. Uh, bought a 49 or 51% interest in a helicopter to a company called Platt LePage. Called what? Platt LePage. It was an English concern. They had uh, built it, or designed, they had, were, had built a twin, a twin roller, side-by-side mm -hmm. uh, -side roller, patterned pretty much after a Focke-Wulf experimental design that was done in Germany. And uh, he had bought a half or controlling interest in that and was intending to set up a helicopter division. Now, this is 1943. Uh, Sikorsky had been flying helicopters uh, for about two years at that time. 
and uh, the helicopter as a as a military vehicle had not really progressed. In fact, it didn't in World War Two. It was only in uh, later in Korea and in, in uh, Vietnam. And I was sent down there to meet. Uh, a chief engineer called Konstantin Leo Zakarchenko. He was a, a classmate of Max at uh, MIT, and uh, they had become separated after graduation. Uh, Zak went to work for Chiang Kai-shek, uh, uh, the Chinese nationalist government, to run the uh, Chinese nationalist aircraft company, and when Japan overran China, Zach escaped. Uh, he was a former white Russian naval officer. Uh, uh, and Mac had put him in charge of this new company he started, and it was operating in Upper Darby, Pennsylvania, right outside the suburb of, of Philadelphia. And Zach had just come back into the country, I think, courtesy of the U.S. Navy somehow. And he had a Chinaman, Shawan, uh, a German, uh, Vernon Altman. And uh, I was sent down there along with another young aerodynamicist, uh, Goodman, to uh, go to work there and, and uh, help them get out a proposal for the Navy. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was early for those. But it was very early for that, and uh, but again, it's it was the way Mac operated. It, it never re the helicopter division never really panned out. But we got a lot of good experience from it, and uh, he uh, he decided later, I think around 1947 or 48, that there wasn't any future in that for us. Although later on, uh, we bought uh, the Hughes uh, helicopter company from Hughes Aircraft. And operated it in Mesa, in Mesa, Arizona. It sounds as though you all you were always a jump ahead. Uh, we were, and I think that was largely Mac. Mm -hmm. He was. Uh, well, I guess if he jumped out of the airplane in the first. <laughs> but you can see. Uh, he was. Uh, the, the only one thing I think. <laughs> His engineers, Al Uch and Gary Covington and Ken Burton, uh, bootlegged the first man in space, Miss it was called, mm -hmm. uh, and it became the Mercury Project. Uh, I think that took Mac a little bit by surprise, uh, and uh, but he got on board in a hurry, and, and uh, the uh, the space pro program. Uh, he was behind that wholeheartedly, and, and but I think that was that was one where the engineers, uh, had they listened to Mac, probably would not have been in it where they were. But they went ahead on their own on that, and found ways to to finance it with the with the government until they were in position to propose Mercury, and they wanted. Did you have any labor problems during the war? Not during the war. I don't recall any of the labor problems that we had during the war, although uh, on a subject I, I would suggest you get hold of a man by the name of Bob Crone. He was, uh, at that time, uh, either manager of personnel for McDonnell Aircraft 
or VP. With a K or a C? Chrome uh, with a K, K-R-O-N. I think it was K-R-O-N-E, Robert Chrome. Okay. Uh, he's out in, uh, in Bellarive, if you can get hold of Bellarive. Bellarive? Uh, Buzzbook, you could probably find his name in there. Okay, thank you. Um, so, that I know there were some strikes in 1944, it seems, in some plants. And I just wondered if I don't recall that we had any any real strikes mm -hmm. until later, about mm -hmm. in the 1960s. How about security? Did you ever? Uh, well, security was was always present. Mm -hmm. uh, there was both the in-plant security, that is, uh, McDonald's own thing, and then you had to operate within the government's. Uh, security regulations. They had various classifications. You could be cleared for confidential, cleared for secret, top secret, uh, black areas, uh, and uh, that was always present. And did, did you have inspectors, army, navy inspectors? There were army and navy inspectors uh, and uh, auditors as well. The uh, services. During the war years, we had a the, the plant was under the Navy's cognizance, which meant that they were responsible to the U.S. government for the operation of the plant and for sort of a general overseeing of the accounting practices and, and uh, inspection and, and quality assurance and cost and all those things. And they used to have a Bureau of Aeronautics rep here, UF rep, they call it. Uh, and uh, it wasn't until we won the F-15 we changed from a Navy cognizance to an Air Force cognizance. And then after the F-18 came back in, I think it went back to Navy. Mm -hmm. But uh, they had, and they had a 200, 300 personnel there. To, in 1980, uh, at the time when we were building uh, F-15s, F-18s, and 88s, and some Phantoms, at, uh, Phantom 2s, uh, they had upwards of 200, 300 people mm -hmm. housed out there. And they were all types. Uh, inspectors who would uh, sign off on, on manufactured parts, uh, auditors, engineers. There were so many later on, as you want. Now, when the company first started, that office out there probably had eight people in it. Uh, but uh, <laughs> the red tape of the bureaucracy grew almost exponentially. I wonder what would have happened if there had been no war. Well. <laughs> There were two of them. <laughs> well, actually three when you count uh, Vietnam. Uh, it's, uh, it's an extremely difficult environment to work in. Why is that? Because of the, uh, the overseeing. Uh, the Air Force runs its operation as a military operation. Uh, each man, a captain is 
will take over for a major who takes over for the colonel if anything happens and, and they have strict regulations to how that's to be done yes captain has to be qualified in this in order to hold this particular position and he has to hold the following qualifications in industry you do it uh, you find an outstanding engineer he may or may not be chief engineer of potential and you've got to decide does he have the ability to, to lead a group of people can he make the decisions that has to be made or is he the type that's better at research end of it uh, when you pick a, a, an engineer like that, uh, you don't run him through a school on it to, to be qualified and everything. It's kind of, he's the best man to do it. He's going to learn in the job, and, and that's his best avenue for advancement. And you'd run into these uh, regulations that the Air Force would have. Well, has he uh, been qualified uh, uh, in uh, quality assurance? No, but we have a man that handles the quality, quality insurance this man is going to handle engineering well the two are tied together we expect them to work together well they'd want to sit down and say that in order for you to have a chief engineer he should have the following qualifications even when industry is saying no we'll pick the chief engineer that we think is the best for the job mm -hmm. but it's just two different ways of doing it i mean they operate in an environment where you have to have that it's essential that uh, you have a captain that's trained to take over if a major is shot uh, and you all had to get along with them. And we have to get along with those. And it was, it, uh, a tremendous number of man hours go into it. You, the Air Force and the government, not only the Air Force, but all three services, uh, would go through routinely changing the deal. First, we would build prototypes, then, having built the prototype, if the prototype was successful, then you would go into production. Well, the trouble was that it was such a fast-moving industry that there were so many changes that would come up after the prototype flew that you practically had another prototype when you went into production. Mm. And so then they said, oh, we can't do this. We, thought we built this prototype so we'd have this, and we've got all these problems. We'll do the next one. We'll do it from production right from the start. Then they would change the type of contracts you had. In development work. Are we after the war or during? This or was both during and after, after the war. You'd have uh, what were called on development programs where you were breaking new ground, building an experimental airplane. The type of contract they wanted to lease to give you was a cost plus a fixed fee. Mm -hmm. And then they modified that to cost plus an incentive fee. So how well you did it, the fee would vary. <laughs> the first one was you just got a fixed fee. You did the development work, whatever it cost, and you got a fixed fee on top of it. And they said, well, that isn't working. Some of these guys do a better job than the other. Let's make it an incentive fee. Then they said, well, that's foolish. Let's make it fixed price on it. We can't stand this escalation. Well, and then you had the fiascos like yeah. the C5, you know, which were fixed price development contracts that came in. The company just eventually said, we give up. We're not going to spend any more money. It's true. You can't do that. Well, we can't spend the money you don't get it back. We don't get it back. And the, that constant vacillating back and forth, each new administration that comes in says, I'm going to put a department with a man that has a Secretary of Defense, and uh, he's going to uh, clean up this mess and the procurement of it, and we're not going to issue any more cost plus fixed fees where these people get rich on doing a bad job. These are going to be all fixed price, and everybody's going to bid for them. And eventually, they they'd run this down so low and so many people bidding on it that 